We're starting a four-week series right now called The Miracle of Christmas. Get your Bible out. Galatians chapter 4, 1 to 7. And, um, and the series will culminate on Christmas Eve. So we've got three more Sundays in December. Um, and then Christmas Eve is on Monday, and the series will culminate there. That's a candle lighting service. Uh, it'll be less than an hour, family worship, a uh, really great opportunity to invite your neighbors, coworkers, roommates, that kind of thing. And then on December the 30th, we're only going to have two services here, family worship on this campus. We'll scale it down, keep it to an hour, uh, nine, uh, 9.30 and 11. And, uh, and so that's kind of your calendar for the month of December because there are some changes. And uh, so, yeah. So so great. My, uh, you know, when you get married, um, you tend to bring in um, family traditions that are different, right? I mean, we had our family traditions. And then when I met my wife, I was dating my wife, they had their own Christmas traditions. And, and one of the things they did that I love that, uh, you know, introduced to me when I met her was every Christmas Eve, after their Christmas Eve service, uh, they would come back to their house and they would read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, probably six, seven o'clock at night. Uh, and then they would pray. And then every kid got to open one gift on Christmas Eve, right? How many of y'all do that tradition? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. Yes. I thought it was really cool. Uh, my parents were like, no, not till Christmas morning kind of thing, you know? So, um, so Christmas Eve, you know? And so as I was thinking about that tradition, which is fantastic, I think there's actually um, some spiritual implications for that, which I want to kind of unpack for you. And then we'll look at Galatians chapter 4, and we're talking about the miracle of Christmas and what is the miracle of Christmas. And this morning, we're going to look at several things, but the main thing I want to focus in on is the miracle of God's timing for Christmas, of sending His Son. And, and, and we'll talk about some implications of that. But, but really, Christmas goes back to Genesis, right? And, and so God creates Adam and Eve. They sin. And so God could have judged all the human race, Adam and Eve, right in that moment. But, but God, in Genesis 3, comes up with a redemptive plan to restore, redeem, buy back back. And, and he says in Genesis 3, hey, the heel of the man's going to crush the head of the serpent. And, and so, you know, and so uh, alluding to Christ and, and then the redemptive plan in Genesis continues to unfold through Abraham, right? Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. And then it continues to unfold as God narrows down the redemptive plan to a particular nation. He says the nation of Israel, out of the nation of Israel is going to come the Messiah. And then God continues to narrow it down through King David. And he says, King David, out of your lineage is going to come the Messiah. And then, of course, the people of Israel, they begin to worship other gods. And so God scatters them, uh, deports them out of Israel, and they, they become enslaved to other nations. And actually, as God deports them, he refines them. And, and these people that once were worshiping multiple gods and wrong gods and false gods, they, they come back to a one God worship as they're deported. And we kind of see that in Daniel. And, and, and so the world is waiting. The world is pining. The world is hoping for their Messiah who, who comes on Christmas morning. Now, here's what I want to encourage you with, is, is uh, the Christmas Eve tradition, right, is the first advent, all right? I want you to see Christmas Eve tradition is the first advent, one gift, right? And it's great, and it's awesome, and it's an awesome gift. 
But the very next day is the real gift giving, right? It's when you get all the gifts. You get the fullness of the gifts. And I'm pretty certain that my mother-in-law, she didn't give out the best gift on Christmas Eve. just a taste, right? It was the stocking stuffer. It was the little one, right? But the big one was the very next day. And so God's been doing this redemptive history and Christmas is really the final, it's the first, first act of the final act. Does that make sense? It's the first movement of the final thing that God is doing. Christmas brought the beginning of the final act of God's redemptive plan. And so your life is Christmas Eve. It's the one gift. Corporate worship is Christmas Eve. And the one gift, it's the foretaste. It's the reminder. And Christmas Day, here's the deal. We have to view eternal life in this regard. It's just one day away. We get the taste. We get the deposit of the Holy Spirit. But man, the next day, eternal life is forever and ever and ever. We get the fullness of God's blessing. Isn't that great news? Only a preacher could take that illustration and weave it into redemptive history. Don't try this at home, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go, Galatians 4. Paul now is unpacking for us this final act of redemptive history. And when he says this in Galatians 4 verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, Up to this point in redemptive history, we've been enslaved to less than God's best. He's saying that the law of God had served its purpose, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments for the people of Israel were intended to be a teacher, a guide, to remind them that they're sinners and they're in need of saving, right? It can help us in the same way today. We're to look at the Ten Commandments and go, man, I I want to keep these, but I can't. And so that means I'm a sinner. And that means I need to be saved from my sin. And so what the Jewish people had done is they had taken the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and added to it and made it really legalistic. And so because they made all these rules, they did, they did the wrong thing and they became enslaved to the moral law instead of the law was supposed to remind them, man, I'm still hoping for something. I'm still hoping for Christmas Day, if you will. I'm still hoping for the Messiah. I really like the way the NLT translates this section, so I wanted you to see this because I think it'll help you understand it. Galatians 4 out of the New Living Translation says it this way. Paul says, think of it this way. If a father dies and he leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than their slaves until they grow up. And even though they actually own everything their father had, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. That's the way it is with us before Christ came. We're like children. We're enslaved to the basic spiritual principles of this world. And so the people of God were really enslaved to kind of a religious duty. And one of the things that, you know, I hate is it's usually when I'm talking to someone, maybe he's not a Christian, you know, talking about my life, and they'll say, man, so you're really religious. Now listen, there's spiritual disciplines in my life. There's corporate worship, there's small group, there's serving. All those disciplines are help remind me of my need for Christ, but it's not religion. Religion doesn't enslaves us. It doesn't save us, right? Those things are to remind us of the need that we have for Jesus Christ. We need saving 
from the just judgment of the law of God. These things were intended to lead the people of God to hope in the Messiah, but what they ended up doing is enslaving. I love O Holy Night. By the way, unfortunately, my mic was off. I was trying to hit note for note with Maui during that song. I, you know, I was like, if you could have only heard it, it was awesome over there in the corner. Um, I love the song O Holy Night, right? Where it says, long lay the world in sin and error. What? What's it say next? Anybody? A pining, pining for a sa- Savior. And so even, even today, and the second, as the first advent has come, and we're hoping for the second advent, we as believers should be pining for the return of Christ. If you're not pining for the return of Christ, let me tell you something, your focus is way too much on this world. Now listen, we have good things, and Jesus came, and he promised the abundant life, and there's blessings, and all that is great and good, but it's Christmas Eve, and we're supposed to be looking to Christmas Day pining for the second advent. And Paul says, man, all these things left us enslaved, but we're hoping and waiting. And so when Christ was born, Galatians says, the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, now, I want to make a couple points about the fullness of time, and, and this is why I, I labeled this sermon the miracle of the moment, okay? So I'm, I, some of y'all will be really kind of jazzed up at this. Most of you will be bored, okay? So here we go. Try to stay jazzed up. What about the fullness of time? What was it about this moment in redemptive history that was perfect? Well, number one, the law had accomplished its purpose. In the sovereign plans of God, the purposes of the Old Testament law and the way of doing things had come to the conclusion, meaning it was now time to come to the end of the sacrificial system, the end of the ceremonial law. And the moral law had sufficiently pointed the way for people to know that they needed a Messiah, they needed a saving. And so uh, the law had come to its conclusion. And religiously speaking, ever since uh, the nation of Israel was scattered throughout the nations and the Babylonian siege and they scattered people throughout the nations, well, guess what that did to the people of Israel? The people of Israel came back to believing in one God, right? Behold, Israel, your God is one God. And so there's this scattered group of people all throughout the known world that believe in one God. And and what these people did is they scattered throughout the world. They built these things called synagogues, right? And in these synagogues, these God-fearers, these one, not multiple gods, which was common in worship of the day, these Jewish people were God-fearers, built these synagogues. And guess what? When the gospel began to spread, these were the perfect outpost, the perfect launching point for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread. At just the right time, God sent forth his son. So there's the law, and there's kind of the way religion, the, the way the Jewish religion had spread, and now there's the culture, right? Most of the known world at the time was under Roman rule. Alexander the Great, one of the things that made him, it was the reason we, like, like when you die, if they attach great to the end of your name, you've done some really strategic things, right? And Sean the Great. If y'all do that one at my funeral, that'd be fantastic, okay? So... Um, Alexander the Great. One of the things he did that was so strategic is he wanted to make sure that his country could do commerce. And so everywhere where his rule out, he, he brought the whole country under one language. He kind of started a thing called a trade language, and it was Greek. And so, and so here, at this time in history, most of the known world was speaking one common language. The second thing that Alexander the Great began that continued to grow after he died was this idea of commerce. He, he built roads. And listen, 
never in the history of the world had under one known area where there's, was there such a system of language and commerce where people could communicate together. And so as you can imagine, as the apostles took the message of Christ to the known world, there was never a time in the history of the world that it was easier when the fullness of time had come. And then there's politically speaking, right? And, and there's, this was an extremely unique time in history where the Romans had conquered much of the known world and they lived under this thing called Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. And so there was general political and economic stability all around the world. And most of the conquered known world was under Roman rule. And so Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, and I believe this includes the law of God, the religious outposts called synagogues throughout the known world, where the teaching of the Messiah could be readily received. Culturally speaking, communication was never easier. Roads made travel easier. And in God's sovereign plan, all of history lined up for the spread of the gospel so that you, in a totally different country 2,000 years later, could sit here and worship Christ. Isn't that amazing? So I know it's a little bit heady and a little bit boring, but Paul, I think, is saying, man, the fullness of the perfect timing, God did something. And what did God do? Ready? God sent God sent, verse one or verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent, and what did he send? His son, born of a woman. And so how did God intervene in this unfolding of redemptive history? How did God inter- intervene? What did he send? Well, he sent his son. Pastor Joey did a, a great job last week. I'll tell you what, if you missed last week, I can't recreate it for you. It was incredible, yes? Incredible. And so one of the things he did at the beginning was Oh, Pastor Joey, as he reminded us as we focus in on the Christmas songs and Christmas season, that Christmas wasn't the birth of God. Jesus always existed. He was pre-incarnate. This is pre- He's always been God. He's got, what did God send? He sent his son. The word son does not indicate for us beginning, all right? It indicates for us this idea of functional order that the son in the Trinity submits to the will of the Father. Our God is one. He's, he's revealed himself in three persons. The word Son shows us relationship, that God the Father and God the Son are intimately close. And what does this mean to you and I, that God sent his Son? It means that he sent you and I his very, very best. You do not worship and serve a chintzy God. He has given us his very best. And when you look into a manger scene, don't ever let it lose its wonder that God has given you his best. And he was born of a woman, Paul says. That means he was also fully man. This is the mystery of the incarnation, the God-man. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man wrapped together. And how that works, I don't know the mystery of it, but man, never let us lose this wonder. And I want to tell some of you something, and maybe you're visiting here today. There are many, many churches in America giving this doctrine away. If they give this, if you're in a church where they give this doctrine away, the mystery of the God-man, run away because we have no gospel if we do not have the God-man, okay? Now listen, what, what, what was, here's a little bit of a so what, ready? Listen, Christmas time can be a difficult time. And Pastor Joey preached a, a great sermon uh, right after uh, Thanksgiving on Lamentations, and he talked about, man, it seems like in, uh, behind the scenes, it feels like our counseling load this time of year goes up, because this can be difficult. I remember when Pastor Joey sent me his text the week of thank- weekend of Thanksgiving, he's like, I'm going to be preaching out Lamentations. I was like, nothing says Merry Christmas, like Lamentations, right? So, no, but I get it. And it comes from all angles, right? 
mean, just turn on the TV, you know. I, I love the car commercials. They crack me up, you know. There's this one car commercial. I don't know if it's BMW or Mercedes, but it's this it's little boy gets out from a young age, gets up, looks out his window, no car in the driveway. And they see him progressing through life. So one day he's married, he's got a wife and kids. And finally, late in life, he gets up, looks out the window, and his, his wife surprised him with like a Mercedes or a BMW. He's so excited. I'd be like, what are you doing? We have two kids in college. Take that back, you know, like can't afford that, you know. And then there's the other commercial I saw recently, a husband and wife, and he comes out, he surprised her, and he's got a his and her $50,000 pickup, you know. It's like, he just dropped a hundred grand for Christmas, you know. I'm like, what? <laughs> We'd have to live in that thing. Get out of here, you know. Like, what? But listen, you see enough of these commercials and jewelry and stuff, and, and, and if you're limited in resources, you can begin to feel bad. Like, man, I do love my wife, but sorry, Zales. You know, like a noodle necklace is what I was putting together, you know. And, but man, we can begin to get disgruntled with the resources that we have. Yes? And then, like every commercial is happy family eating dinner together. We just did it as our bumper video, right? But maybe that, that's not your family. Like maybe your family's really fractured. And, and so you're seeing, you're getting bombarded, and you're like, man, and you can't give the gifts you were hoping to give. And maybe you're wrestling with depression where it seems like everyone else has got twinkly lights wrapped around. I've seen several people come in strands of lights wrapped around their sweaters this morning. Like, and you're like, I just don't feel that twinkly. I got other things going on inside of me. But what happens is we can get disgruntled with the season and we can begin to project that on God and say, man, God doesn't care and God is unloving and God is distant. Never lose the wonder of the incarnation. How much did God love you? He wrapped himself in flesh. He was born of a woman. He walked on this earth. He struggled. He wept. He experienced living with very, very little. The Bible said there were times where the, the, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He said the foxes have a home, the birds have a nest, but God's got nowhere to lay his head. He knows what it's like to have very, very little, right? He knows what it's like to have a family question him. He knows what it's like to have his friends desert him. He knows the pain of what it's like to live in pain with your body breaking down and your body hurting. Our God is not a disinterested, detached, unremoved God. Don't let the, the publicity of the season let you forget that. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Our God knows where you are. He's born of a woman. And so God sent what he sent his very best, born of a woman, fully God, fully man, deity, wrapped in flesh, God among us, God with us, a God who cares, a God who gives, a God who loves. And what did, the, what did God send to his son to do? Well, Galatians 4, 5, sent to do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What did God send his son to do? To redeem. The word redeem means to buy back. So the law of God reveals our sin. The law of God reminds us our sin deserves the penalty of the law, which is both physical death and spiritual death. And so God sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and then intervene and buy us back by spilling out his blood on the cross so that your soul, your life could be purchased, redeemed. Last year, there was a, um, a small group that 
generously gave my wife and I a gift card to a really, really nice restaurant in Williamsburg. It was, it was way above our pay grade, you know, and it's one of those ones where, you know, there's like five different forks laid out, and, um, and the, you know, they're, they're metal, and... Uh, <clears throat> I asked for a spork. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to eat with this thing, you know. And um, and I ordered the filet mignon, and uh, the guy's like filet mignon, and I was like, there's no Y in there. I didn't, I didn't know how to say that. So um, we had an awesome meal and an awesome night out. You want to know what it cost me and her? Nothing, nothing. The meal was paid for. She wasn't paid for by me paid for by somebody else. Redemption is that you have to stand in the presence of God perfect and holy. You have to live in such a way that every moment of every day is perfect, and you can't do it. And so what you deserve is the penalty. You deserve the wrath of God. But God sent His Son to intervene and buy you back. And you want to know what it cost you? Nothing. It's been paid for. And how do we connect to this incredible gift of grace and mercy? It's repentance and faith. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I believe in God's redemptive plan, His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're adopted. You're adopted into the family of God. You become a part of His family. You're no longer an orphan. You're no longer on your own. You're special. You're sought after. You're loved. Years ago, I was reading um, a biography on Steve Jobs. He's the... uh, co-founder of Apple, okay, he's now, he's actually now dead, he's passed away a few years ago, but he, um, he, uh, you know, if you're a Mac user, you love your iPhone, you snarl and spit on Android, okay, then you love Steve Jobs and what he did, and so um, Steve Jobs was actually adopted, and when he was a young boy, one day he was playing in the neighborhood, and a little neighbor girl said to him, when she found out, he, when she found out he was adopted, she said, oh, your parents didn't want you, this really affected him, and he he ran into the house crying, and he talked to his adoptive parents and said, what's wrong? And they said, well, you know, I just realized my parents didn't want me. And his adopted parents looked him in the eye, and they said, Steve, we specifically picked you out. And if you've read the rest of the biography, went on to talk about how Jobs, Steve Jobs grew up with this kind of this sense of being special and sense of being chosen. In fact, when he, whenever he was recruiting a high-level leader for Apple, he would often encourage them with this. He says, do you want to come work here and make a dent in the universe? That was his line. And uh, man, how much more do we get to make a dent in the universe than just making iPhones, right? Uh, to spread the fame of our God through Christ, through the gospel of Christ. But we're adopted. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We get to call God by the power of the spirit, Daddy. That's literally what Abba means. The Holy Spirit confirms when we're in the gospel, Daddy. And so listen, there's no hurt There's no prayer, there's no concern, there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no discouragement, there's no desire, there's no longing that because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we cannot bring into the presence of God because He's our Father, Daddy, and He cares. Because you're a part of the family. Being part of the family means you're invited in. In my house, I call this refrigerator rights. You have refrigerator rights. Some of my kids' friends, they come over every day. 
Hey, can I get some, can I get some food? Can I get a drink? Listen, I finally had to sit one of them down. Listen, you have refrigerator rights, all right? Just help yourself. And that has more to do, I'm just sick of getting off the couch for you, all right? Like, don't knock, just come in, refrigerator rights, right? Revelation 3.20. I know it's written to a church and all that, but I love this verse because I think it just gives us this picture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will do what, church? I will come in and give you a bunch of rules and regulations and religious duty. No, man, we're going to come in and eat together, right? Eating together is this picture of intimacy and fellowship. Yes, are there rules to be a part of my family? Yes. And those rules are an overflow of love and worship and adoration, but they're not the, they're the overflow. They're the result of intimacy. They're not the earning. They're the overflow. And some of y'all have this idea that God is somehow the cosmic killjoy. He, he brings rules and he brings religion. No, he comes in and eats with us and he shares a meal with us. He's intimate with us. He wants to know about your day and he wants to know about your concerns. He wants to know about your struggles and he wants to shape them and mold them and mold you more into the image of his son. The miracle of the moment is ultimately found in what I'm calling a Christmas consummation, which is this, ultimately in Christ, ready for this, you're an heir to the son of God. Isn't that great news? Galatians 4, 7. So you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Woo! The inheritance of Jesus Christ is ours. And as an heir of Christ, guess what? You get to spend freely this Christmas. Get to spend freely this Christmas. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. Here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about pulling out your credit card and going out and getting gifts for people that you can't afford. That's a whole other sermon, right? The Bible says the debtor is the servant to the lender. All right? So you may give a gift on December 25th that you think they just got to have, and then you're a servant on January 1 when the bill comes, Okay? So when I say spend freely, what I'm talking about is what did we receive in Christ? Oh, we received forgiveness of sins, yes? So listen, you may sit around the table with a fractured relationship with a family member, and guess what you get to give freely? Forgiveness. You want to know what forgiveness is? I'm letting you off the hook. I'm going to let God take care of judgment of you. It's not my job his job. I forgive you. And acceptance, right? We've been accepted by God in Christ. And so if we've been given acceptance, we can freely give acceptance, right? Some of you need to let go of a prejudice. Accept another brother and sister in Christ, regardless of their background, the way they look, their skin color get to spend freely. Grace and mercy we've been given so we can be gracious people. Generosity, we, we have a generous God so we can be generous. Hope, we, we have hope in Christ so we, can, we should be living hopes. 
and life and joy, and I could go on and on. So we can get, here's the deal, you can spend freely this Christmas. You can let go of the grudge and forgive. You can open your home and hospitality. By the way, if you're a member of the church, or you're a tenor of this church, you're in a small group and you're planning on having Christmas here, listen, make sure that everybody in your small group has a place to go this Christmas. Because we've been given a lot of hospitality of our God, so let's open our homes and be hospitable, yes? Make sure your neighbor has a place to go. Nobody needs to be alone this Christmas. Let's be generous people because we have a generous God. We can be warm and inviting. We can, we can give up that parking space that we have sat and waited with our blinker on for 10 minutes right at the front and just park at the back, right? I mean, I probably won't do it, but some of us could, right? So. We can be generous with those in need. We can dispense grace, and we can give hope. We can spend freely. Why? Because our God has freely spent on you. Amen? Amen. So in Christ, there's peace on earth. And what, church? Goodwill towards man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you spent freely on us this Christmas. Just the right time, God. It was perfect. You sent your son, born of a woman, redeeming us, buying us back, that now we can be a part of the family, adopted, we get to call you daddy, and we are heirs of both abundant life and eternal life. Thank you for that hope. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.